Military coup, misguided foreign policy, air raid disaster, the changing of presidents, the stain of John F. Kennedy's legacy, invasion, deception, disaster. Welcome to the Salem's Lot podcast. I am your host, Marcus, joined by the wonderful Claire. This episode, we are taking a look at the event behind the event, the untold story that led to the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Bay of Pigs an American oversight on the beaches of Cuba that would inadvertently lead to both the Cuban Missile Crisis, Operation Mongoose, and over 100 deaths. But first, our regular host Claire with the news. Hi guys, I hope you're all doing well. We have just a few little short news stories before we get into Marcus's Bay of Pigs. I'm quite excited that you're taking this podcast today. I'm quite excited to learn more about it. Thank you. So the first story that we have that occurred this week, or news came out this week about, was the journalist for the independent newspaper, Andrew Buncombe, who was jailed in Seattle after trying to report on the Black Lives Matter protests. Was this an accident, or was it just a limitation of the press? It basically occurred, he was at a park in Seattle, he had his press badge, and he approached a police officer who was standing by the police do not cross thing. You know, he showed him his press badge, but the police officer just wasn't having it. Shackled him, arrested him, and started to tell him, you know, his rights, the sort of spiel they go through when somebody's being arrested. Um, he was refused everything. You know, they didn't listen to him and asked for his lawyer to speak to his editor, to speak to the British Embassy. He was held for a few days, they didn't even allow him to make a phone call after saying that his accent was too thick for them to understand even his name. He was manhandled into his cell and basically in his article it just sort of seemed as though he was made aware of how bad the American prison system can be and how you know very minor things can get escalated very fast and um, it's a shame to see. I mean, 25% of all people in the world who are, who are incarcerated are in America. You know, so much money goes into this. And really, it's, you know, one, you can't squash the media. You know, Americans love their amendments and their, their rights of freedom and right of speech. But as well as that, it just makes you think about how much reform the American uh, prison system really needs. So... You know, keep an eye on that and any other journalists. You know, I feel like we've heard a lot about journalists recently who've been, you know, shut up for trying to speak about COVID or shut up about the Black Lives Matter protests. It's quite scary because it's never a good way for a country to be going. So thoughts go out to the Americans who are currently dealing with that. <laughs> and hopefully it's not, it doesn't become a bigger issue. As well in the news, those of you who watched the Tiger King documentary on Netflix... After a few people were on trying to film a little video on the site of the former zoo owned by the Tiger King himself, which is based in Oklahoma and was passed on to Carol Baskin, which caused much despair to Joe Exotic, they reported that human remains had been found and called the police. However, when they arrived, it turned out to be the remains of a small animal or an alligator, 
which, you know, how do you... Isn't quite the same thing. No, how do you muddle that up? I think they were just looking for some more episodes, a wee bit more drama. And last on the news comes from Britain. So all of our Brits out there who are hoping to go out and, you know, start going back to restaurants, get some takeaway food. Well, we have good news. In August, there will be a 50% discount to diners in certain restaurants. And this is part of our Chancellor Rich, Rishi Sunak's plan to kickstart the economy, get money back into hospitality, retail, any sector that you can, basically. Um, so this will cap out at £10 per head. And it's just to sort of induce more spending. Basically, I don't think it's a terrible idea. It's not the worst thing the government have came out with. Um, no. They've got quite big names, you as know. As long as people are careful about it. Yeah. But I think the restaurants themselves will be responsible for making sure that people are following anything they can get kicked out. But that thing you sent me made restaurants look quite dangerous. Yeah, yeah, we saw a, an article in The Independent and it was from US scientists and they had ranked sort of most dangerous things to do just now, you know, what's most likely, what's most likely. To, to give you an infection? Yeah, to give you an infection. Can't think there's somebody with a lawnmower outside. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you feel brave enough, go out, get some food, get your 50% off. But be safe. But we don't mask. condone it because if you die, it's not on us. No, it's just not. Saying. So why Cuba? Why now? Why Fidel Castro? The United States post-World War II was not a country to be ignored. It had desires and ambitions central to dictating the direction of foreign countries on a lesser scale of international dominance. Relationships built on reliance and cooperation with the whims of North America. Seeds sowed through the provision of military equipment alongside many other tools were at their disposal. Prior to Fidel Castro, the relationship between the US and Cuba was hardly as smooth as one could hope for in a country formerly occupied and left to struggle in corruption. His ascension to power and the means by which it came about are revered and derided in equal measure. Mired in Western perspective of events, failing to acknowledge, acknowledge the instability the United States brought upon the region, in order to properly understand the events that took place on that beach on April 17, 1961, we must understand the build-up of US intervention in the region, commencing almost exactly 73 years prior. The battleship USS Maine sunk on the coast outside of Havana on April 15, 1898. Official reports indicate that 268 men died when it struck a mine, although it has long been speculated that the source of the tragedy was never wholly identified. Survivors of the wreckage have since claimed that the tragedy was actually caused by a spontaneous fire that started on the ship inside of a coal bunker. This hypothesis of events has been verified by those who have investigated its claims. However, despite this, the official story remains that it was the result of a sea mine, therefore an active military provocation, and due to the consequences resulting from this tragedy, it has remained highly debatable to this day. The sinking of the USS Maine would be the event later described by the American government as the pivotal factor in declaring war with Spain and its territories resulting in the eventual surrender of Spain and the creation of the Treaty of Paris. Amongst the selling of the Philippines to the United States, the liquidation of Spanish ownership in the West Indies and the cessation of Guam and Puerto Rico, Cuba 
was formally declared an independent nation with this treaty, albeit under American occupation. As a slight to Cuba's newfound independence, the United States refused their participation in the Paris peace talks and set no date for an end to military intervention in the region, which would eventually come three years later, in the year 1902. But the state that the US had left Cuba in with its newfound independence was rife with corruption and heavily reliant on support from its precious American rulers. Not only that, but the United States had forced Cuba's newly independent government to agree to US military intervention when and if they deemed it necessary. This legislation was titled the Platt Amendment and would become the springboard of justification for future attempts to strong-arm control when America felt its power in the nation slip. The Platt Amendment would be used to trigger the second occupation of Cuba in 1906, and at the end of the four-year term of its first sitting president, Thomas Estrada Palma, the stated goals of the US and Cuba during this time were to prevent Cuban civil war, prevent American economic interests from being damaged, and ensure that free elections took place. The United States receded once again in 1909, and would intermittently engage in Cuban affairs. Due to the one-sided nature of the relationship between the two countries, it has been argued that Cuba at this time was little more than a colony, independent in name only. By the late 1920s, under the reign of then-President Mahado, political unrest had began to stir once again, with the president's unwillingness to leave power. In this case, the US did not intervene. As a result, what followed was a coup known as the Sergeant's Revolt that took place in 1933, a grassroots communist uprising led by a popular university professor, Dr. Ramon Grau San Martin. The provisional government established in the wake of this movement passed very progressive legislation, ensuring women's suffrage, minimum wage entitlement, the eight-hour working day, and reforms towards ensuring that peasants had title ownership of their land. This lasted for one year. For, in January 1934, with the support of the American government, a right-wing civilian and military coalition seized power. In 1940, Fulgencio Batista became the president of Cuba for his first term. Formerly a military officer, in his first term he received the political support of the Communist Party and to this day remains the only non-white Cuban to have earned the presidency. He had played a part in the 1933 Sardin's Revolt in the previous decade and in his term in office propagated further social reforms that had been started in the original coup. But something had changed in him. Perhaps it was the power, being the most powerful man in the country, to know the feeling of having a nation under your fingertips. Due to Cuban law, he left office after his first term unscathed. Those that loved him were willing to die for him. Those that distrusted him saw the fascist and communist skin. And then he returned in 1952. Seeing that he was certain to fail in the election, Batista used his military influence to seize control of the presidency once again. A presidency that, despite its unlawful control of the nation of Cuba, had the support of the US government. This time, Batista stayed in power for seven years and his grip over Cuba was one mired in corruption, ties to organized crime, and drug running. 
The playwright Arthur Miller describes Batista's Cuba in his work The Nation as hopelessly corrupt, a mafia playground, a bordello for Americans and other foreigners. Casinos flourished and became hives of illegal embezzlement, both domestically and abroad. And, despite the positive indications of the Cuban economy at the time, almost a third of its workers were permanently unemployed, and that same number lacked running water in their houses. The push-pull of democracy, communism, fascism, and capitalism had ended in cocaine, hookers, and false promises from a morally corrupt president. And then came Fidel Castro. The Cuban Revolution was the defining moment of the nation's history in the 20th century. It is a dense movement, with key figures and bloodshed on both sides. To try and diminish its scale and the ripples it caused both in Cuba and abroad would be an injustice to the topic. So this episode of Salem's Lot will only acknowledge it, not comprehensively address it. In a future episode, we may analyse the event in more detail. Let us know if that's a topic you would like us to explore. But what we can say is this. Regarding US involvement, they watched the situation in Cuba with a keen eye as Batista's government increasingly lost control of the nation to various rebel groups. Without the Platt Amendment, the United States did not intervene on a militaristic scale, opting instead to pose trade sanctions that would cripple the economy. Fearing his life and knowing his time as the leader of Cuba had firmly ended, Batista accepted American help to evacuate to their shores on New Year's Day, 1959. Meanwhile, Castro worked tirelessly to unite the various rebel groups and in tandem sought to further marginalize the wealthy and the landowners, many of which exiled to the state of Florida and today are considered to have a substantial population in the region. In a wave of newfound nationalism, Castro worked to retire political opponents from the administration whilst providing lower classes land to live and work in new reforms. He hated America and the influence it had had over his nation's affairs since its annexation at the end of the Spanish-American War, making his hatred known to such an extent that within six months of his ascension to power, the US president at the time, Eisenhower, sought to oust him. In January 1960, Roy R. Rubatum Jr., Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, summarized the evolution of Cuba-United States relations since January 1959. The period from January to March may be characterized as the honeymoon period of the Castro government. In April, a downward trend in US-Cuban relations had been evident. In June, we had reached the decision that it was not possible to achieve our objectives with Castro in power and agreed to undertake the program referred by, to by Under Secretary of State Livingston T. Merchant. On 31st of October, In agreement with the Central Intelligence Agency, the department had recommended to the president approval of a program along the lines referred. The approved program authorized us to support elements in Cuba opposed to Castro's government, while making Castro's downfall seem to be the result of his own mistakes. In March that same year, only two months after his declaration, the French trade ship La Cubra exploded in Havana Harbor killing dozens of people. The CIA blamed Castro for the attack. 
Increasing escalations between Cuba and the United States followed, focused economically on the oil trade. The relationship between the two deteriorated so much so that in January of 1961, diplomatic ties were severed by the US. But this was only the beginning of the United States' intentions with the nation, as in April that same year, less than four months later, they launched what would later be known as the Bay of Pigs invasion. It was a disaster. The Bay of Pigs invasion was planned over the course of two presidencies, prepared by the Eisenhower administration and enacted by his Democratic successor, John F. Kennedy. Known in Cuba as La Batalla de Riron, the intent of the attack was simple, empower the opposition to Castro and overthrow his government, replacing him with a figure that would better serve the interests of the United States. In brief, a non-communist figurehead. Kennedy was briefed on the mission prior to his taking of the role of president. Importantly, he was made aware of the work already underway by the CIA, who had established training camps in Guatemala to properly prepare the Cuban exiles who would serve as the infantry in the attack. It was pivotal that the mission remain a secret, and that the US involvement was disguised so as to not draw attention back to the Kennedy administration. Despite efforts of the government to keep the invasion plans covert, it became common knowledge among Cuban exiles in Miami. Through Cuban intelligence, Castro learned of the guerrilla training camps in Guatemala as early as October 1960, and the press reported widely on the events as they unfolded. Cuba was ready for the attack. And then there was the issue of the landing point. The area chosen was done so for its remote lo locale with intentions to land in the dead of night. This would allow the infantry to hide any American involvement and hopefully meet minimal resistance. However, if the invasion fell apart, they were isolated and stranded between land and sea, more than 100 kilometers away from the mountains. Secrecy was vital to the success of the mission. Failure to do so would have them exposed to annihilation on those beaches. The CIA was heavily involved behind the scenes of this invasion, not only in the preparation of soldiers for guerrilla warfare, but in the acquisition of planes to fly from Nicaragua. What did they need those planes for, you ask? To bomb the Cuban Air Force and neutralize its aerial advantage, covert. On April 15, 1961, eight World War II bomber planes left Nicaragua and flew over Cuban airspace, dropping bombs on the nation only they missed. In an attempt to be discreet, the CIA had painted the planes to appear Cuban, however they did such a poor job of that, as well as the news, as well, they did such a poor job of that, that when the news broke and the footage of the planes were captured, it became obvious that the ones using the attack were American. Not only had they failed their initial attack, leaving the Cuban airspace perfectly intact, but they had outed America's role in the invasion. Humiliated, Kennedy withheld further aerial support, and yet, despite this, two days later, on April 17th, Cuban Exile Infantry Brigade 2506 landed at the Bay of Pigs, ready to try and exact their vengeance on Castro's government. What followed would leave a stain on American foreign policy and lead both countries towards the Cuban Missile Crisis. 1,400 soldiers landed on the shores of the Bay of Pigs and were ambushed by Cuban forces. Their ships were sunk, 
air support shot down, and to make matters worse, poor weather and cheap military equipment left them open to slaughter. Castro had combated the CIA-supported exiles with 20,000 troops of his own and managed to pin them down at their landing point. In the 48 hours that followed, and hearing of the catastrophic failure, Kennedy agreed to send an air umbrella of US support in the form of six B-26 planes. This too ended in catastrophe, as not only were they serially outnumbered, but they were also an hour late due to a confusion in time zones. Each and every one of them was shot down. With over a hundred men dead, and with nowhere to go, the Cuban exiles who had arrived on the shores of their former homeland in hopes of liberation surrendered to the Cuban army. What followed for those soldiers was almost two years of political imprisonment, used as a bargaining tool for the US government. Eventually, their freedom was provided to them in exchange for over $50 million worth of goods. And upon arriving to the US, the surviving brigade members gathered for a ceremony in Miami's Orange Bowl, where the brigade's flag was handed over to President Kennedy. I can assure you, the president promised, that this flag will be returned to its brigade in a free Havana. The disaster of the Bay of Pigs had made a lasting impact on the Kennedy administration. Determined to make up for the failed invasion, the administration initiated Operation Mongoose, a plan to sabotage and destabilize the Cuban government and economy, which included the possibility of assassinating Castro. Fifty years have passed since the Bay of Pigs disaster, and to this day, the flag of Brigade 2506 has not fulfilled its destiny. Right. Well. I've got two main questions for you. Mm-hmm. The first one is, why do we let first world, predominantly white countries, get away with what would otherwise be unacceptable and deemed as war crimes if other countries did it? God knows. They just... I mean, I'm saying they, but we've done it as well as a country. Mm. Poke our noses in to absolutely everything. I think the thing I find most egregious about the Bay of Pigs isn't even necessarily the Bay of Pigs itself, although it, that is just like the needle in the haystack of all the things that they were doing wrong. But the Platt Amendment, when they gave Cuba its independence, they pretty much forced them to be able to intervene whenever they wanted. Yeah. And the amount of coups that they were involved in yeah. and their decision on who should be the president. And then they talk about these free and open democracies. Yeah. It's absolute horseshit. Yeah, they're not a free country if... America's still, you know, puppeteering things behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And, like, if something isn't going how they want, they're like, oh, we're, like, the white saviour. We'll go in and we'll sort things out. And then they fuck it up. And it's also, if you think about the whole white saviour thing, it comes into, you know, Brits or, like, celebrities and philanthropists and stuff going into Africa. And, you Mm. know, being, like, look how good we are. We're, like, over here like learning about these different tribes and stuff as if they're doing anything good. Yeah. It really bothers me. It's like leave unless you're gonna actually do something progressive, like you're helping to build a school or you're helping whatever, leave them alone. But then you look at what's going on with China and their work with taking over Hong Kong and this whole thing going on with India right now. Nobody would be batting an eye if America was trying to do it. No. You know? No, it's like America 
in America Britain seems to well. be getting a pass. Yeah, get a pass. You know, they'll throw up, oh, we were like the allies in World War Two. We are the good guys. But no, that doesn't mean you're the good guys forever. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Like, Germany a hundred years ago were the bad guys, but I don't think Germany are firmly anywhere near the bad guy territory no. anymore. But then this idea of good guys and bad guys is ridiculous. Yeah. I do think that it's worth it noting, though, that America can do horrible things, invade other countries on a whim, control the decisions of their government and what their government yeah. is made up of, and yet if any other country tries that, it's war crime. Yeah, and even if you look at freedom of the press and stuff, what's going on in America... Um, they're trying to prevent certain information from getting out yet they were the very same ones who were complaining about China and the coronavirus stuff mm. and it's like pot kettle black but then we also can't say that it's just Trump because this stuff's been going oh, on oh yeah like the whole reason that they even intervened in Cuba and the Spanish-American war could fundamentally be built on a lie mm-hmm. because they say it's a seaman, but the people on the ship themselves say that it, it looked wasn't. more like it was an error of yeah. their own judgment. And yet, all this stuff, like, they got Guatemala and Puerto Rico and Guam. Yep. And what was the other place? I think one of them's now one of the states, isn't it? They got the Philippines or something like yeah. that? So, America just seized on this opportunity... Like, from their own possible men making a mistake, they turned it into a war, which they knew that they had the manpower to dominate, just as an excuse to be warmongering. Yeah. It's like, Britain was doing that stuff hundreds of years ago. Like, everybody's kind of had their period in the sun with it, you know? Way back when Genghis Khan owned half the world, the Romans have owned half the world, um, the British have owned half the world, and Napoleon was doing his stuff. Yeah. The Dutch, can't leave out the Dutch in Africa... And then the Spanish, you know, they did really well as well. But I think as a world, we've kind of moved past... You'd like to think that we've moved past this. Yeah, we shouldn't have superpowers trying to own... I mean, that wasn't that long ago. That wasn't long before my parents would have been born. No. So it's like, that wasn't so long ago. So to think that that kind of stuff could still happen isn't far-fetched. But even then, it's like... I get where Fidel Castro was coming from. Mm-hmm. Like, this country that has no business being involved in my business mm-hmm. is telling my people how to live. I don't agree with that. Yep. They're choosing who's in control. They're throwing coups to make sure that peaceful democracy and, like, proper reform... They, that's what they did when they yep. did their communist reform. That's what I was most shocked about, like, this whole women's suffrage, eight-hour, like, working days. Yep. Those are acceptable. Even by today's standards, yep. those are progressive. And yet, not up to the standards, lasted a year, got ousted for an American. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just... Uh, it's, it's like they like to control things and see what's going to happen when they do this. And then step in and look like the heroes. And this whole, you know, even owning countries anymore is ridiculous. Like the British Commonwealth. Yeah. No need for it. You know, just the people who live in that country, that's their country. You know, you can go back to even the United Kingdom. I mean, Britain tries likes to think that they're like a big shop when really America has tons of the power nowadays. Yeah. And uh, it's just frust- frustrating because you see a country who's trying to like better themselves, get back on their feet after being ruled for so long by others and they're still being ruled by others and they're the ones who are fucking up for them. Well, Cuba now... Like, as a result, Cuba and America didn't do any kind of economic yeah. trade for 
a very long time. Mm. And I think in the Obama administration, they opened up some of it, but not fully. No. There were some things that they could export finally, but still it's not, like, there's still no, trade tensions. No, it's not fully open. But, you know, I don't understand, I don't get how you can punish a country for taking back its own country. Yeah, for trying to like better their own land. And even like the fact that we there's still trade sanctions on them today, just because we don't agree with communism as like this whole first world democratic power, democratic with, you know, bunny yeah. ears, you know. I don't really see, I, I'm not really up to date on what Castro's world looks like because I know that, I don't think he's still in power anymore. I think he died and his son took over. There's questions there to be made about yeah. families taking over and has it turned into a fascist thing because yeah. that's what communism always seems to fall back into. But they shouldn't be punished. No, why is communism such a threat to a country that claims to be such a big superpower? You know? Because I think that capitalism and communism they do not gel. They don't gel, but when it's not happening in your country, leave it be. But then I think it might be an issue of no country got communism right. Yeah. But what happens when a country gets communism right? I think that's the scary part for capital capitalist nations. Yeah, they don't want if, to give them the chance. Because if people, if like people in a capitalist country, just regular Joes, see a communist country in which everybody's treated equally everybody gets fair and they've refined the system so that it works, yeah. they'll want that mm -hmm. more than getting shafted in a world where the rich are elite and everybody else is put in these tiered classes. Yeah, that's true. And I I don't believe in the sort of communism that, you, like you said, they haven't found it to go right yet. But I used to have conversations with my dad about it and he'd be like, you know, there needs to be somebody who's much smarter than me who's going to write this right and they're going to write a good manifesto and they're going to manage to do it in a way that it has all the fundamentals of communism but doesn't turn into fascism. Yeah. And someday will do it. Someday it will work out and people will be quaking in the wee boots. But who's going to be quaking in the wee boots? The rich are going to be quaking in yeah. the wee boots. Everybody else will be fine. Yeah. Everybody just... else will be like, yes. And then the fact that we're already discussing uh, universal basic income where the, the way everything is going with automation and stuff, communism really seems to be the only workable answer after a certain point. Yeah. So I think as a world, I mean, we're not at the point where you can take down the barriers between mm -hmm. countries because obviously there's religious issues, there's cultural issues. We as a species have developed so far, but not enough to get over these basic ass hurdles. Mm -hmm. But we're doing a lot better than we were, one would like to think. We're in now, some ways, We're yeah. more globalist mm -hmm. now, where I, I, we don't see colour. At least younger generations really don't have issue with races like we used to. Yeah, no, we still have racism, but it's not... I wouldn't say it's in our generation. I would say it would die out by the time that we're dead. Hopefully. I'd like to think that it would die out. Um, and I know that we're a microcosm and the people that we surround ourselves are microcosm, but we don't particularly attribute ourselves to super leftist. We can't, I'm kind of grotesque by the super left. I think the super But the fact that we still don't see race as an issue. Yeah. No, but I think that's the issue itself, you know. I'd say I am left. I just disagree with the super far left that are, you know, doing the opposite. They are blocking people's views, they're blocking conversations. They're not they're trying to educate but only educate their agenda. Mm -hmm. You know? I think being a true left person is about understanding the other side's point of view and trying to work out, you know, a middle ground so that everyday 
is treated in a better way. That's what I believe. So I would consider myself central to left. But then that seems to be the problem with communism after a certain point. It goes so left, it becomes yeah. right with the super leftist ideologies with like uh, inclusion of transgender people and all that stuff. It's going so left that it's actually right. Yeah. See, but then that makes me wonder, you know, we won't let commun we don't like when communism goes that far and we're quick to you know, the governments are quick to jump on that. Mm-hmm. But we've got all these people who are super far left that it's dangerous and we're not doing anything about that. You know, people should tackle issues closer to home as well. Yeah. Which makes you wonder with all the issues that were going on in America, um country. Yeah. And that has been another episode of the Salem's Lot podcast. Next week we'll be coming back with a slightly more conversational piece as yet unconfirmed. Maybe organised crime. We've been watching a lot of The Sopranos lately. Yeah. So we're feeling that whole mafia vibe. But then we also watch Hannibal, so maybe we a serial killer. <laughs> we don't know. It could be aliens again. We like we'll to keep see. it fast and loose. Yeah. I'm Marcus. I'm Claire. Thank you for listening. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>